Hello, and welcome to Stern Chats. I am Daniel Yellen. And I'm Lauren Marinero. And today on the show, Lauren and I had the pleasure of speaking with Ben Sperling. Ben is a second-year MBA at NYU Stern and is actually one of Lauren and my really good friends since uh, the beginning of when we started at Stern last year. Prior to Stern, Ben was a Teach for America fellow, teaching math to high schoolers in Atlanta. And this led him to start his own nonprofit, Next Generation Men and Women, creating a path to graduation and success after high school through exposure to local colleges, companies, and support. And Ben is a really good example of somebody who created a really positive impact on the world even prior to coming to Stern. Um, He's a wonderful person, a lot of fun. We enjoyed having this conversation, diving into his background a little bit more than we already knew, and we think that you're going to enjoy it too. Let's get to it. From New York University Stern campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Ben Sperling, welcome to Stern Chats. It's so good to have you here today. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, no, it's it's a lot of fun to be able to have our friends on the show. And this is a, a block two reunion. Um, so I'm really excited that Lauren and I get to talk to you today. Yeah, awesome. So I want to really just jump in because you had a pretty unique pre-MBA experience. Uh, you started your own nonprofit. You were a Teach for America fellow before that. Um, but rewinding the clock even a little bit before that. Um, so you've told me that you grew up in a family that focused on academics and service. But I would just love to hear a little bit more about your childhood and what it was like growing up in your family. Yeah, definitely. So I grew up in Connecticut, my mom, my dad, and my older brother. Um, like you said, we had a, a strong focus on academics. School was always kind of top of mind. And my parents were the ones, you know, always very involved in, in school and PTA and all that, but just making sure I was always on top of my work. Um, and then I had the opportunity to go to a private school for high school. And that just kind of kicked my butt into gear an extra notch and really got me prepared for college and everything, but just instilled a very strong work ethic. And that's where kind of my, my service commitments picked up as well. So I was always doing tutoring. I was, you know, starting after school programs, um, just involved in all aspects of service throughout high school, which, you know, continued on through college. So my, my mom went to Emory, my brother went to Emory. So Emory was kind of a family school. It actually made me not want to go to Emory at first. And then I went down and visited and realized it was probably a good, a good place for me. Um, but service was big for me. I was always very musical growing up, as was kind of my whole family. So um, Daniel, as you know, I sang in an acapella group in, in high school and college. Um, and lastly, sports were big. So you know, I played a lot of tennis, basketball, and soccer um, throughout high school, you know, casually in college. Um, but my family was just very supportive, which really kind of continued on throughout, throughout college. And then the career decisions I made uh, wouldn't have been able to do what I did without the support of my family. Um, so yeah, my, my upbringing was really around that, really around that aspect of support on, on anything that I took on. And I can totally understand, uh, falling in love with Emory once you visit the campus, <laughs> uh, being from Atlanta and having been on the campus a bunch of times, it is, it's pretty gorgeous. Um, although it's funny that you mentioned that, you know, sports were big growing up because sports are 
not what I would say are, uh, are a focus of the Emory, no, of the Emory culture. Not at all. We had more <laughs> was... people yeah, at our intramural basketball games than the varsity basketball games. We would like walk into the, to the athletic center to play a game of pickup and there'd be a varsity basketball game going on. And we'd be like, Oh man, like, are you guys almost done? Like, when, does this, when is this over? Um, but it, it was just great being involved in all the other aspects of the school as well. And, you know, we went to Georgia tech, went to UGA here and there just for the big, big sporting events to get our fix in. So Ben, um, you know, given, you know, how much you talked about how education was so important in high school and then also that transition from public school to private school, talking about how, you know, that new environment really kicked your ass and, you know, put your butt into gear. Um, was that some of the motivation that led you to Teach for America and, and wanting to kind of, um, I want to give back to the community that gave so much to you? Yeah, definitely. I think going to that kind of private school for high school just opened my eyes to the difference in the education levels um, and how I could get a very different education than people who are going to the school, you know, just right down the street in New Haven. So, you know, I think that's what first opened my eyes to the problem of, you know, educational equity in our country. And then as I got more and more passionate about the issue and got towards the end of college, I thought, what better way to get involved in the system than working on the ground every day with the students um, as a teacher. So applied to Teach America. I had some friends who had done the program and had, you know, really positive experiences. And like I said, I was placed teaching high school math which was scary. But once I got in, you know, I, I just loved it. So the students were great. You know, you quickly learn that they're kids just like any other kids. Um, but unfortunately, they have a lot of barriers, just based on where they're born, um, you know, the, the surrounding environment, and really a lot of times a lack of resources at the schools. Um, and then, you know, just as a teacher in those environments, you take on many other roles. So sure, delivering the math content was important. But a lot of what I was doing was teaching kids the importance of learning and school and how this would help them in the future. And I would always have kids in every class raise their hand and say, Hey, Mr. Swirling, when am I ever going to need this? Right? When am I ever going to need right triangle trigonometry? And I'd say I never said you would need this in your <laughs> in your future career, um, unless you become a math teacher like me. But you know, the skills we're learning, the resiliency, the perseverance, you know, the growth mindsets, things like this are, are going to help you throughout any kind of career path, college, whatever you do post high school. Um, and then, you know, you had to really learn who the students were and who their families were on a personal level, because every student had just a variety of, of issues that they were dealing with on their own that you needed to take into account. So I remember when I started teaching, I had a policy of, you know, if, if you don't do your homework, you get a zero. That's, that's it. That's what Mr. Sperling says. That's the rules. And I quickly learned that that was not, not an okay method to take on with the students that I was teaching because they, there were so many different occasions you had to factor in for. So for example, a student wouldn't do his homework. And, you know, if I spoke to him after class and said, Hey, like, you know, just talk me through, why don't you do the homework? This is out of character for you. You might say, well, you know, as you know, like, you know, me and my mom are homeless at the moment and we couldn't find a shelter last night. So I was on the street and had to kind of stay up most of the night, like watching over our stuff. And that's just a very real scenario that who am I to, you know, give this kid a zero on his homework because he had to take care of his family, which was obviously more important than the right triangle trigonometry work. Um, so I'd always say, you know, that's okay. 
you can come in during lunch and do it. You can stay after school. I'll give you an extra day. You just have to work with the students uh, and work with the families. So I had very close relationships with the parents, um, community members, just, you know, building that level of trust was, was so key, especially coming in as a, as a white guy, a young white guy and, and teaching, you know, all black and brown students. Um, that level of trust was so important to get kids to, to like me and want to perform. You know, I had some of the highest attendance rates just like for my classes and, and after school activities I was running. And it was not because they liked math. It was because they, they liked me and they didn't want to let Mr. Sperling down, which was kind of a great position to be in. Um, and then I coached soccer, you know, went to the football games, just got involved in the community and the school. And I think that's what really led to my success with my students. Um, and then just showing them that, you know, you cared about them. So, you know, we didn't have money for calculators. And you teach high school math, calculators are pretty important. You can't really do the sine, cosine, tangent calculations without a calculator. <laughs> um, I don't know how to do that. And I was the math teacher. So, you know, when I went to the principal, he said, yeah, unfortunately, we don't have, we don't have calculators. We don't have money. And that was the answer. And it seemed like, you know, everyone else was okay with that. And what I did, I set up a little fundraiser online for a batch of calculators, 35 calculators that we would share all my classes. And within, you know, a few days it was funded. And a week later we had calculators at the doorstep and people thought it was amazing. And, you know, all it took was a little bit of effort. Um, and all of a sudden we had calculators for everyone. So I think just showing the students that you're willing to go that little extra mile to make sure they're successful, uh, was, was super important. So I don't think that it's uncommon for teachers to kind of have to take on this entrepreneurial mindset, um, as unfortunate as it is, um, that they have to go about getting these necessary supplies for their classes. Um, you had to go out and be creative and figure out how you could make a difference for these kids. So from going from teaching where it's this very measurable in some ways direct impact on these kids to deciding I want to go out and do something and create a nonprofit that helps these kids um, that doesn't have structure, right? There, there's not a system in place. I'm going to be building this from the ground up. This is more than just doing a crowdfunding for 35 calculators. This is going to be really hard. Um, why did you decide to leave teaching to found next generation men and women? And if you could just give our listeners a little bit of a description for what next gen is. Yeah, definitely. So I'll start with that just to set a context. Next gen um, is an education nonprofit organization that works to close the opportunity gap for under-resourced high school students in Atlanta right now um, through exposure and support and really prepare them to graduate ready for college and career. So we do this through an after-school program. It's led by teachers and college students for cohorts of high school students, all centered around personal identity, professional skill building, and a lot of college and career exposure and readiness. Um, a big portion of the program is students going on trips every month to a multitude of partners to learn about industries, career paths, all from the professionals doing the work. Um, so I started that in 2014, right after I left the classroom. Um, to, to talk about why I did that. You know, it really all started from me and two of my best friends who are also Teach for America Corps members in Atlanta, you know, celebrating the end of a semester, just, you know, having some drinks and talking about the problems we were seeing in our classrooms and realizing that despite teaching different subjects, different areas of the city, different students, the problems were all the same that we were kind of most concerned about. And a lot of that had to do with the lack of positive exposure and the lack of support structures for our students to prepare them to be ready for what came after high school. So 
figuring out and when this. you say exposure yeah. what do you mean specifically so we mean when i asked seniors or juniors in high school what they wanted to do you know for a career we typically got the same five answers you know doctor lawyer ceo athlete musician which you know ceo is not a career but it's a, it's a title um but that's all we heard and a lot of that had to do with that was all kind of what they were exposed to they'd never seen so many other career paths you know for me growing up i had a lot of different exposure from you know my my parents friends family friends you know even just like going to the dentist right like he'd always say hey you know what are you thinking about next steps? What do you think about college, career? Just like always kind of this influx of thinking about what's next. And our students didn't have that. Um, so they didn't have the support structures, but also it was just a lack of exposure to kind of what else was out there. So it, it spurred from that. And really the interventions that were being put into, into place were really negatively focused. So me and my co-founders all sat through assemblies where they bring all the boys into what the auditorium and bring in a former gang member to speak about how bad gang life is right or you know we all had students who were put on like the beyond scared straight like prison tour program and there are a few problems with this one i think it's like, extremely unethical like where i grew up like they would never even consider putting me on like a prison tour it just wouldn't wouldn't fly right so why are we doing that to these students um and secondly the students would come up to us and they'd say mr sperling you know, this gang member has come in every year since like third grade. We see the same guy, the same presentation. Um, so if you're going to keep doing this, bring in someone else. But secondly, like, I don't want to be in a gang. I never said I wanted <laughs> to be in a gang. So why do you keep showing this to me? So really spurred from the students and with a very simple concept of why are we showing them what we don't want them to be instead of what we do want them to be. So in thinking, you know, do we quit our jobs teaching at the end of the year and do this full time? Um, it was definitely a risk, but I think we all believe that this was where our impact could be the greatest. You're right. No, I'll never have as much direct impact as I did teaching in any job I ever do. You know, kids walk in the door in the morning, they don't know a concept. You teach it 90 minutes later, they walk out, they know it like, and there's, it's measurable. Um, a kid comes in, not thinking about wanting to go to college. You work with him all year, end of the year, he's graduating and going to college. Like it's an amazing feeling and experience, but I knew that, what I was doing was kind of a bandaid to the problem because there are systemic issues here and it's a problem with the structure of the school system and, and the lack of support structures there. So we thought we had a good idea. Um, and what better time than just to take that risk and go for it. We were young, didn't have, you know, families to, to worry about. And, you know, if it all flops in six months, then, you know, we'll figure something else out. So that summer 2014, we did a crowdfunding campaign for a pilot program. We started with 12 students, um, just taking them around the city, showing them all these different things, um, doing a lot of like professional skill building and public speaking. I mean, it was like 6 a.m. We'd pick, we'd drive our three cars, pick up four students each from their houses, do a full day of activities to like 10 p.m., drop them off at home and do it the same, the same thing the next day for eight days straight. And that was our pilot program. Mm -hmm. And we realized afterwards it was, it was really impactful. The students left, even though it was a little over a week, they left with like actionable steps about their future. So a student came into the programs, you know, and his goals were, I'm going to graduate high school, go to college, and then become a, a chef at a fancy restaurant. And after he left our program, you know, one of the days he went to a fancy restaurant, all the students did, they got a tour of the back of the house, the front of the house, heard from a famous chef, I mean, learned about the industry. So at the end of the program, he said, you know, I'm going to graduate high school, but next summer, I'm going to 
you know, work as a busboy at this restaurant. And then I'm going to go to school and study like culinary arts. And then throughout school, I'm going to intern at different places. And then I'm going to graduate and become a sous chef. And then I'm going to work my way up to an executive. Chef. I mean, he had a plan, right? The goal didn't change, but now we had action steps and knew how to get there. And that was the whole point of what we wanted to start. And, you know, in the last five years, it's, it's grown. And, uh, you know, we have a little over 300 students in the program this year. Uh, we have about 40 to 50 partners in Atlanta that host visits for our students, um, have a, have a pretty large staff, um, running it in Atlanta. So um, now I'm on the board of directors and no longer running the organization, but it all stemmed from, you know, teaching, seeing the problems and then evaluating how I could be most impactful in this space. Real quick, Ben, you make it sound so easy. You're like, we know we just <laughs> cars, picked up a bunch of students, but I mean, it's uh, really much harder than that, right? Like, I'm just curious to know, I mean, I'm just going through my own head thinking about, okay, well, how did you form all these partnerships? So you had a full day schedule of, of events yeah. for these students. Where did you go if you just wanted to like, you know, sit in a classroom and practice public speaking? I mean, I mean, yeah. how did you make it all happen? It, it was, it's definitely not easy. Um, it was a wild ride for the beginning. I mean, our day one, we worked out of a coffee shop for the first nine months. We didn't have any money. So we worked out of a coffee shop because they would allow us to buy uh, a tea and a banana in the morning. So we'd spend like a dollar fifty, and we could work there all day. And they, they were, they knew what we were doing. They were cool with it. They were entrepreneurs themselves. Um, so they let us work there all day for nine months. So every time we had a meeting, you know, we, it was kind of fake it till you make it. People would say, "Oh, can we meet at your office?" We're like, "Oh, no, let's meet at this coffee shop instead." Like just for you know, for now, like doing <laughs> our meetings. And every time we had a conference call. We would, you know, they'd call me and be like, yeah, I want to talk about that grant. Like, are you and your co-founder available? And I'd say, yeah, let me just like grab them into my office one second. And we'd run to the parking lot, jump in the car, <laughs> put it on speakerphone and be like, yeah, we, you know, I got Ian in my office. I got um, you on speaker. Exactly. Your whole, so your whole music a- is just whatever's playing in the coffee shop. <laughs> exactly. So it was a lot of that. Um, but it was really hard because there was no game plan. So we had to do everything ourselves with no boss, no one telling you how to prioritize and how to do things um, with this just giant list of priorities that just built every day. So it was a lot of reading. You know, I remember like within the first week I went online and bought like financial accounting and bookkeeping for nonprofits for dummies, like read that book. And I was like, all right, I guess I'll like, I'll take on the accounting. Um, So it was a lot of you know, learning as you go, but also figuring out where everyone fits into this team. So I said, I had my two co-founders. Um, they were obviously instrumental in doing anything. You know, we did everything together and we all had our roles that really worked well together. Um, and then we had a really supportive board from the beginning and that took a while to recruit those people. But at first you're, you know, you're pitching people all day, every day. So we would have four or five meetings in a day where we're just going through our pitch and getting feedback from donors to principals, community members, students, I mean, getting as much feedback as possible for the first six months. Um, and then once you kind of have a refined program, it was a lot about fundraising. And we needed to raise money to do it, but we didn't have a product to show, which is you know, very different than a for-profit for enterprise. Um, so we had just people needed to trust us. And we had a good idea that we were gonna work at this. And you know, give us some trust and we're scraping around for a thousand dollars here, 500 here, 10,000 here, just like, you know, anywhere we could get the money. Um, and then once we had it, it became very real. It was like, okay, people have invested in us. Now we got to do this right now. We got to like really build this out. 
And it was a lot of, you know, iteration and just refining the model. And, you know, you'd be surprised either how did we build these partnerships? A lot of people want to help and they want to get involved. It's really about lowering the barrier of entry to get involved. So that's why we want our students exposed to careers. People will say, oh, do a career day. Well, we don't want to do a career day because, you know, career days aren't fun. People, people come in, they talk to the students for 45 minutes about what they do. They ask if there's any questions. It's usually crickets in the room. And then the next person comes on and does it. So we said, <laughs> let's take out that whole barrier. Let's bring the students to the professionals and ask them, like, will you just stay after work for two hours one day in the next five months? Give our students a tour of the office. We'll do a little activity, eat dinner together. And they were like, yeah, like we've never been turned down. We call them exposure experiences, an exposure experience partner in five years because it's so easy. And they love doing it and it's super impactful for the kids. It gets them out of their environment. Um, so that's kind of, it was just thinking about, you know, what's currently being done and how can we kind of flip it a little bit to make it a little more creative and more impactful, but still trying to build something that's scalable, that's effective, um, that can really reach a wide, a wide range of people. So I'd love to know, I mean, I assume, you know, starting a nonprofit's not quite the same as starting like a, a private sector uh, startup um or for-profit business, I should say. Um, but I'm sure the, the horror stories are, are probably quite similar. So I'd be curious <laughs> if you can provide maybe um, one of your biggest horror stories from uh, your entrepreneurial days, and then also maybe one really big win or one, you know, yeah, opposite of a horror story. <laughs> for sure. Um, yeah, I'll start with like the worst meeting we ever had, um, which we always say it was the best learning experience we ever had also. So we were in that process of pitching to as many people as possible. And at the time, me and one of my co-founders, Ian, we were full-time and our third co-founder decided to teach a third year teaching and he would just do next-gen work every night after teaching, um, which was wild. But Ian and I were just doing these pitches and you know, what's on the slate for today? We got this, we got this. And then in the afternoon, we were meeting with a professor at Georgia State who's involved with Teach for America, but also like just well known in the space and nonprofits and does some consulting. So we knew he'd be, you know, a good person to meet with. So he takes the, he takes it into his office, we do our pitch. And by this point, you know, we're nailing our pitch, we know, you know, I say my joke, Ian laughs, he comes in with his like, we have a good back and forth. Um, we do the pitch, we finish it. And the first thing he says, he looks at us and he goes, guys, please tell me you didn't quit your jobs for this. And we, we had heard a reaction like that before. And we laughed like, haha, yeah, like we're all in, like it's gonna work. And he's like, no, no guys, like this is a bad idea. He was like, you haven't thought of so many things. And then he just started listing out questions. Like, you know, how are you gonna recruit the teachers? Who's gonna pay the teachers? Like, how are you transporting the students to these places? Are you providing food? Who's paying for food? Like just all these questions. You know, what are you measuring? How are you measuring? Like, do you have these metrics? Like just, it was wild. Um, and I'm frantically writing down every question he had, right? And we left that meeting so deflated, like, wow, like he tore into us. But the next day we had 15, 20, like really important questions that we needed to figure out because they were all relevant. And this guy knew what he was talking about. And it was great. And, you know, as terrifying as it was, and it was, did not go how we wanted it to, um, we say it's the worst meeting, but it was the best learning experience as well. Um, in regards to, you know, the best meeting, I think, 
we had some some early wins um, early on that really helped kind of had a little domino effect. So we did a lot of pitch competitions. You know, when you're that early, you can't really apply for institutional funding yet. Um, you can't really apply for big grants because they have just, you know, either budget requirements, your budget must be above half a million dollars, or you must have been operating for at least three years. Like we just didn't have the track record to apply for a lot of these. So we entered any pitch competition we could find. Um, and one of the first big ones we did was through United Way and it required, you know, a live pitch and then, you know, they rank the top three and then you go to the finals, you do another pitch and a big audience. Um, and we ended up, I think we got second place and coming out with like twenty twenty five thousand dollars um, which was a good win for us. But really what it did was it signaled since it was backed by United Way, it signaled to a lot of the players in Atlanta that like we were legitimate, we had been vetted, um, we were kind of the real deal. Um, and then we were able to get some other grant funding kind of from then on out. So it was, that was a good feeling. I remember that my, my co-founder just had ACL surgery. So all the pictures are him on stage on crutches, um, <laughs> which, which is great. But those, those early wins are, are super important because, you know, the days are draining. We all went from teaching where your days fly by. You're on your feet all day. You know, kids are in, you teach a lesson, kids go out, new kids come in. It's just like all of a sudden it's, it's five o'clock and the day's over. Um, to doing this where we were behind the computer all day. Like that was a very new experience for us, not standing up. Um, especially when we were planning the organization and, and, and how the program would run. So having those wins were important because it keeps you going of, you know, when you have those lulls of like, am I really having an impact? Like six months ago, I was with the kids all day, every day. And now I'm like building out budget spreadsheets and like, it's really impactful. And you get these wins that you see will allow you to actually build out what you're planning. Um, and, and that was great. So all that led to really launching the first program in 2015. Um, in schools with school partners and, and real trips and everything. Uh, and, and it just kept growing and growing from there with more staff members getting at it every year and more school partners. So uh, it's, been a, it's been a great journey, but definitely always remember all those meetings. So Ben, in that first year starting uh, NextGen, you had a personal tragedy. Um, after a long battle with cancer, your father passed away in 2015. I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about what it was like to have this fledgling organization while also dealing with an immensely difficult personal circumstance. Yeah, definitely. Um, it was a crazy experience. And I think the part of the only reason that I was able to get through it um, and the organization was able to continue to thrive was because of the support of my team and, and my co-founders um, and my family, of course. But yeah, so my dad passed away in December of 2015, which, you know, forced me and my wife or girl fiance at the time, I guess. I don't know. She's my wife, my ex-girlfriend. Sometimes I call her. It's funny. She doesn't like that. <laughs> um, uh, we went to Connecticut um, to spend time with my mom for a few months afterwards. And all of a sudden, you know, I had to take on a lot more responsibility with the family than, you know, I was ready for or anticipated. So, you know, my mom luckily was is was in a good you know financial state and and didn't have to worry too much um you know other than things for herself but even just things like figuring out what we're doing with finances or the car or you know is the house okay all these things um so that was on one side but on the other side we had the organization that was in such a critical point you know it was kind of the beginning of the school year we had grown and had all these new partners and I couldn't just leave and, you know, duck out of my responsibilities because with a three person team, it's, you know, you're doing a lot. 
So we had to be creative. And I remember the conversation that I had with my co-founders where, you know, we said, what do, how do we make this work? And a lot of what we had to do was switch around responsibilities. So I had to take on some more of the responsibilities that I could do virtually. And someone else had to take on my responsibilities that required some in-person things like meeting with partners and just being creative in how we're going to go about this and how we're going to continue to move on and move forward and grow the organization while still supporting me and what I had to do for my family. Uh, my dad was a big supporter of NextGen. Um, when the first, I remember when the first news article came out, and we, the first time we were featured on Channel 2 News in Atlanta, he was actually in the hospital. It was like the last month before he passed away. So he got to see that, um, that news segment air, which was super special. But he loved the organization. He met with students um, when we were first starting off. So I always knew he, he would have wanted me to continue it and grow it and, you know, not take time off if, if it couldn't, if I couldn't. So it was a hard process, but I had the support of my team. I had the support of my, my board. Um, everyone kind of stepped up and we did what needed to get done and, you know, forced me to grow up probably a little faster than anticipated at the time, but everything happens for a reason. And, you know, here I am today. Um, you know, at Stern, where it was actually his alma mater, which is, is super exciting as well. Mm. Um, but it was a, it was a definitely a tough experience. But I I really always am very appreciative of the support I had from my co founders. I'm definitely catching a theme here um, in terms of because you mentioned this in the beginning, right? It was this the relationships you had with your co founders that allowed you guys to easily split up the work and delegate and and even make this thing happen, right? And then it was, again, that continued support of your co-founders that got you through this really tough time. Um, and so I know that you mentioned this before, but your family and your friends and your community are really important to you. Um, and that just, it comes out in the stories you tell. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, of course. With that being said, I'm curious, um, you know, startups are constantly pivoting, changing, the organization can grow over time. Um, and again, the support system is so key to all of that. How many times did you and, and your team have to change direction in order to grow? Oh, so many times. Um, <laughs> we, we, we constantly look back at like the first deck we ever created. Um, and we've never shared it with anyone because it's so terrible. <laughs> it's, it's so not aligned to what the organization is today. Um, I, you know, we, like we, I know what you're talking about. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when we started, um, it was just next generation men. It was not next generation men and women. Um, so it was just next generation men for the first few years. And this was intentional. Uh, we always planned on including women into the program, but as three male co-founders, we did not want to try and pretend like we knew what young high school women needed. It just, I don't think we knew and we didn't want to pretend like we knew. So we started it with the young boys and, you know, immediately people were coming to us saying, we need to do this for girls. We need to do this for girls. Why isn't there girl? And we say, we, we want to do it for girls. It's just going to take some time. We have to prove this model first, grow kind of smart and intentionally. And we promise we're going to bring in next generation women in the mix. And I think initially it was like in five years, we'll do that. And then we ended up doing it like within the second, like the third year, I think we launched next generation women um, because that gave us the amount of time to, it was about a 12 month planning process. And we had an advisory board of like 25 professional women in Atlanta that would meet monthly to talk about how does the program need to be different for the young men and the young women? Um, what type of, you know, experiences, do we need to include that we don't currently include? What kind of changes to the content? How it's delivered even? Like are the young boys in the program, 
couldn't couldn't really sit still. Um, I couldn't like needed to have constant engagement doing activities. They couldn't st sit still for more than like 20 minutes of a conversation. The young women in our program had no problem like diving deep into a conversation for a half hour. So it was just like changes that we had to do, but we didn't want to pretend like we knew that. So it took time to build that. And then when we launched Next Generation Women, um, you know, there was a lot of excitement around it. And now this year with, you know, a little over 300 students in the program, it's, it's almost about an even split of 50% male, 50% female, um, just because of the point we've grown to. So we're well represented, but that's just one example of pivoting. Also, like a lot of times things didn't work out like we had planned. I remember, you know, someone reached out to me, a high school friend and said, Hey, my family runs a clothing store up in Connecticut. And we have all this extra inventory that we can either resell to like a Marshall's or a target, or we can donate it and get a tax write off. Would your organization want it? And I was like, yeah, sure. We got kids like kids, like clothes, like whatever, send me mm -hmm. some clothes. Um, a week later I had 12 giant boxes at my doorstep. Remember we didn't have an office. So it was at my, my door. Um, of my apartment with $35,000 worth of merchandise that they had sent oh me. My God. And my wife was not happy that we had all these clothes <laughs> at our doorstep. Um, but like, what do I do with this? And I remember I called the advisory board member who does our accounting. And he was like, Oh Ben, like you messed up this time. And he was like, this, <laughs> he's like, this has like accounting problems we have to now do with it. Cause now it's going to count as like income until we offload it. And I was like, I was just trying to get some clothes for the kids. <laughs> um, and you know, we, we had to figure out what's, how do we do this? Because you know, and to be honest, like a lot of the clothes weren't like, they weren't the nice, like they were clothes that people didn't want to buy. Right. Like they were all new but they were kind of the rejected clothes and um, we couldn't just like go around the school handing out clothes. So we ended up setting up like a clothing closet at one of the schools. We were able to rent a U-Haul one day and unload it all at once. And now they were able to use it for their students and we were able to write it off all at once. But it was a situation where it was a very big learning experience to me where when you're working in this industry with, you know, underrepresented or marginalized communities or, or any anything that has like these social justice kind of issues at hand, you can't grow to the size of the problem. Like you have to figure out what you're good at and what you're working at. And, you know, clothing might, you know, clothing insecurity might be an issue for some of our students, food insecurity might be an issue, but that's not what we focus on. So if a student, we learn from that, if a student came to us, you know, and said, Hey, my family's suffering from like food insecurity, we need some help. It's not our job to go out and find the food and solve that. We need to find them the program that specializes in this. We need to find them the resource that will be a sustainable kind of solution to this problem. Um, but when you try to grow to the size of the problem, it just kind of diminishes every other aspect of what your core should be focusing on. So that was a, a great learning experience. I have hilarious pictures of us all just sitting in my apartment for hours, folding and inventorying every piece of every article of clothing. We had to inventory the size and what there was a shirt or pants or the color. I mean, it was a nightmare. Um, yeah. So, you live and you learn. It, it's so interesting because, you know, that's something that we learn at Stern. If you take any of the entrepreneurship classes in identifying and looking at a business plan and deciding, oh, is this a good opportunity? Is something I would theoretically want to invest in? One of the first questions you ask is, do they have a specific idea of who they are? And so often you see companies that have these grand plans or are looking to solve huge problems, but they don't have that very, very specific audience. And it sounds like you guys ran into that, but 
quickly realized like we have something that we can do really, really well. Um, so let's focus on that and do that really, really well. Exactly. And it's, it's hard to say no to people, you know, people want to help. And, you know, if someone says, can I, can I send a bunch of food your way? You feel, you feel bad saying no, but at some point you have to focus on what, what you're working on. One thing I'll just say is I, I appreciate your sense of scope, not only for the nonprofit itself and, and what you're trying to achieve from an education and um, life preparation standpoint, but also like the scope of your um, leadership and identifying like, you know, we are three males um, who've never experienced a teenage girl's experience. Um, so I, I think that's a huge quality in a founder to to identify what the strengths you have and the strengths you don't, and then um, identifying your path to meeting the needs of all of your stakeholders, but doing it in a way that's intentional. So just kudos to you on, on that as well. Thank you. Appreciate it. And so you were at NextGen for five years before you decided to make the transition to getting an MBA. I imagine your decision to leave this organization that you founded was difficult. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about what that transition was like and what ultimately made you decide that getting an MBA was the right next step for you? Yeah, it's a great question. It, it was, it's definitely a difficult transition. Um, you know, you pour your blood, sweat and tears into something for so long that it's hard to, it's hard to leave it, but it's also hard to give up control of it. Right. Um, so I knew it, it was never going to be something I did for my whole career for a variety of reasons, mainly one being that, you know, my wife and I wanted to get back up to the Northeast. I'm from Connecticut. She's from outside DC. That was always the plan. Um, so that was one thing. Also, I just, unfortunately, a big problem with the nonprofit and education industry is it's not like financially rewarding for people who work in there. And I knew where I wanted to be with my future for my, my wife and future kids and all of that. Um, and I just, I knew where kind of the cap was going to be for me staying at next gen also, um, which is the hardest thing to admit. And you don't like to say it to people. Um, but it's a very real thing that anyone is considering, like anyone who's considering leaving education or nonprofits, that's a big reason. And a lot of people don't talk about it. Um, but I think the most important thing was making sure that there was like a strong transition process. Um, so we had just brought on a new executive director. Um, and we brought on two additional staff members to start as I was leaving. So we had some overlap where I was able to kind of go through some training with them, you know, talk them through all the details. You know, when you start something, you don't, you don't really make like good records of everything. Like I didn't write down everything I was doing. You just kind of do it. And all of a sudden here we are five years later and I have no manuals or handbooks on how I do everything. It's like, no, that's just how I do it. So I needed some time to transition them. Um, even little things like all the usernames and logins that we use. I mean, you don't think about these things. Um, but I feel very fortunate that we got such a great staff in the door to take over. So I was the last co-founder to transition out. Um, mm -hmm. So I kind of held down the fort um, as my other two co-founders left previously. And we're all on the board now. So we're all super involved. But I have a great, there's a great staff running it. I, I tell people all the time, they're way more qualified than I ever was. Um, which is great. And they're also getting paid more than I ever did, which is even better. Like they're getting paid what I think they deserve to get paid. Um, and, you know, growing this organization, taking it to the next level. So they continue to beat our fundraising goals. They continue to grow and expand um, and just really representing the organization in a great way. And I, I couldn't be any more prouder than what it is, but it was definitely hard leaving it. 
um, I'm super fortunate that I get to stay involved and get to sit on committee committees and, and go to the board meetings. You know, I miss seeing the kids and going on the trips. The trips are just so much fun. I mean, I got to, it's kind of like in business school, we got, we get to go to like companies headquarters and do like tour to the office, or like corporate presentation stuff. I got to do that stuff with the students. We got to go to Google and we got to go to like, you know, the banks and whatever. Um, it's just a different context now, but I loved that. So I definitely miss it. Um, but it was, it was just an important decision for me to make for my future. And I think the hardest thing is in transitioning out of this space. I mean, it's similar to kind of what RJ was speaking about last week with you guys. It's, you know, it's a non-traditional background and now you're going like business school. It's like, you know, uh, what about all the impact and the creativity that you've been working on? Now you're just going to go to business school with everyone in suits and whatever, whatever. Um, but for me, it was super important to know, and I got comfortable with this, that you can still have an impact in that space that you're super passionate about, even if it's not what you're doing from nine to five, nine to six, nine to whenever every day. So I looked at the board members on NextGen's board and they had had such a huge impact in the work that we do, whether it's for the time they're giving, you know, their talents, the money they're raising, whatever. Um, and none of them are working full time in this. They're, they're doctors and, and lawyers and, you know, business people and accountants or whatever. Um, so I got comfortable with that. I could still have an impact in this space, in the problem of educational equity in our country, um, even if it's extracurricular. So I'm on that board. Uh, I'm also on the board of a charter school up here in in New York. Um, and I'm also on the board of Teacher America, New York City, the Alumni Association board. So I'm still very involved in the education system. Um, it's just not what I do full time. So I'm comfortable with it, but I'm really kind of happy that I that I made the transition to business school and it's been a great experience thus far. And and with that, um, uh, you know, wh why did you come to business school? What are you going to do with this yeah um well it's it's changed over over the months i mean when i came to business school i was initially thinking consulting i was thinking human capital strategy consulting that's what i wrote about in my essay i read it last week so i was helping out a prospective student um i'm not doing that <laughs> so i quickly learned you know when i started school going to presentations whatever that just the consulting life wasn't gonna fit for me i didn't i couldn't do the travel I needed like less hours than what I was doing at next gen. It just, you know, it took everything out of me. Um, you know, it, it was, it was draining. So I wanted something with a nice work life balance, um, but I didn't really know what I was looking for. So I cast a wide net during recruiting. I really started to enjoy the CPG companies and the marketing and brand management opportunities. So I kind of leaned into that and started recruiting with them a little more heavily and found, you know, Mars, Mars Wrigley, which, was top of my list because I thought the people there were super cool and the work they were doing was awesome. And I decided to go for them as a, kind of my top choice and was able to get an internship this summer doing brand management on the Dove chocolate team. So mm. ate a lot of chocolate, a lot of candy this summer. Any questions, you can come my way. Um, but, but that was great. And, you know, I didn't, 12 months ago, I was not thinking about marketing, but I'm also a firm believer in there's a lot of value not having everything exactly planned out. You know, when I started college, I was not thinking of being a teacher. When I started teaching, I was not thinking of running a nonprofit. So, you know, you kind of let the course run its way. And I believe if you follow kind of what your interests are and you surround yourself with good people, then you'll be successful as long as you work hard at it. So that's, that's the route I'm taking. I had a great summer. I'll be going back there full time next year. 
So just looking forward to this next next step in my career journey. And I, I think I can say that if all roads lead to chocolate at the end of them, that that's a pretty that's a pretty sweet ending. Oh yeah. Um, ben, it's been so great getting to talk with you today. Um, Lauren and I, I think we both agree this was a lot of fun. Always great to hang out with this group. And uh, yeah, so glad to have you on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you both. I love what you're doing. Uh, I'm an avid listener. So keep up the great work and, and appreciate you having me on. And we appreciate that. Thanks so much. Thanks.